by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. You just heard our brand new introduction. And right now, we are going to stop talking about the introduction because we have a great guest here for the podcast today. Right now, we are joined by Dave Sims. He is the lead TV broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. Dave, how are you doing? Doing well, Logan. Good to hear from you. And by the way, love the name of your podcast. That's one of the principal things I learned uh, when I, I transitioned from newspaper guy to talk show host to play-by-play guy, particularly from uh, the great late great Marty Clayman. So, well, how many times do you score. say the score in a game? Well, on radio, as much as possible. TV, I don't have to do it as much because obviously the visual. You got the uh, score bug in the upper left. <clears throat> But, you know, I work it in, but on radio, I try to give it as much as possible. So we'll just jump, we'll go a little bit different path than we usually go on this podcast because you brought up one of the things I wanted to talk about was starting off as a writer instead of a broadcaster and transitioning to a play-by-play guy. What were the unique challenges of that, and how did being a writer help you to become a broadcaster? Well, in terms of news gathering, you can't beat it. I mean, I had I had two internships, two two summers at the Philadelphia Inquirer in my hometown, and then I did uh, seven years at the New York Daily News, then the largest tabloid in the in the country, and it was a you know throw you in the deep end and uh, good luck, kid, go get them. And uh, uh, and in terms of doing play by play, doing talk radio, I'd done that in college, and I always had my eye on doing play by play, and it was you know it, it had had things broken another way, I might have gone right from from college right into broadcasting, but I went into newspapers, which was great because that was coming off of um, the Woodward-Bernstein days of 73, 4, and 5, and it was it was super cool <clears throat> at that time for guys in my generation, whether it be news or sports or whatever, but to, to be a newspaper guy, I, I thought at that time, and I remember how cool it was to do that. Wow, I'm in the, you know, doing, in the same industry as Woodward and Bernstein, and those guys are freaking heroes, man, They you know, what they did, so... The transition was that you know in terms of difficulty, it was stuff that you know I, I had broadcast in college. I played one year of football in college, two in baseball. Last two years I did football and uh, basketball. No, what did I do? I did I did two years. I think I did one year of football and one year of basketball. Whatever. I did some broadcasting in college, and um, and I you know I had a real good taste for it then, and and it just confirmed that something I'd always wanted to do. And a lot of guys when I was in high school had uh, predicted that I would get into that line of work, and uh, you know, here I am a whole bunch of years later. So being a broadcaster, broadcaster and coming from the news side, did that help your preparation? Was it the vocabulary? Was it knowing how to weave storylines inside of a broadcast from the news? What was the most helpful aspect? Well, you know, just learn how to news gather, talk to people, interview, be a good interviewer, uh, listen, you know, know, know how to... And Lord knows that the morning newspaper and having to write a lot of uh, bulletin leads and panic leads and that kind of stuff uh, was very uh, very helpful in terms of you know, best identifying one thing you're trying to sell in a tabloid newspaper. You better get some good stuff in, that, in the lead because people are in the subways they don't have but so much time. It was you know pre Twitter days, 
and it, it could be likened to uh, in, a, in a very small scale to what we do now. But um, it, it was a it was a great way to learn, and it has helped me tremendously as a broadcaster, particularly doing play by play. And you know, it just it, it develops your curiosity, it develops your your listening skills, your interviewing skills. And yeah, you know, I try to put that to work every day. Um, you know, I go to our, you know, work our clubhouse, see the manager, see what he's got to say. If I pull him to the side for some something specific that I want to have, I, I want to have that the writers don't have, and then I you know, work our clubhouse and get some nuggets that, uh, that maybe other guys don't have. You know, following up on stuff that happened the day before, things I'm anticipating, anecdotal stuff, and then I go over to the other clubhouse and talk to their manager and their players and. You know, after doing this for you know the last, I'm going into my 11th year with the Mariners and having done a couple of years with ESPN. I mean, I I came in pretty comfortable, but the, the newspaper experience was tremendous. I always consider it like getting a, a postgraduate degree without the actual paper. So, with the usual first question that I ask in this podcast is, what was your first break? into the broadcasting industry, whether that's out of high school, whether that was out of college, how you ended up getting, in your case, though, I want to expand it a little bit so you talk about just what your first break getting into sports media was. Um, when I left the Daily News, I, I, I did some anchoring at uh, the late and still lamented satellite news channel, which is now Headline News. Turner bought it out. <clears throat> and we did, uh, you know, we, we did basically, it was on news TV. And it was it was the exact style of uh, WINS here in New York and KYW in Philly, sports at 15 and 45. Uh, we did two to three minutes, and uh, that was the first you know, big broadcasting break. And then the first, and I like I said, I had done play by play in college, and then I think the first time I got paid for, and I filled in for Howard David doing a Princeton football game. I want to say that was 84. I think that was before I did the talk show on NBC. So it was probably 84, 5-ish, something like that. He had another commitment, couldn't make it. Hey, can you do it? I said, are you kidding? Yeah, let's do it. And uh, I can't remember the fellow's name who, had, who did color, but it was a former Princeton receiver. He was a good guy, great experience. And, you know, doing that game, I was like, dude, if I, can, if I ever get in a position to do this uh, you know, full-time, i got to do it. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and wound up uh, working out really well for me. You came up through the business a little bit different than than I've been able to do and what a lot of the people I know have been able to do just because you never really had to leave and go to a little market. Correct. Uh, getting a start in a large market, which in New York is about as big as you can be. It's the biggest. I guess when it comes to learning quickly on the fly, like you said, getting thrown in sink or swim, what was the just talk, take us through some of the difficult moments and maybe the unique moments of being a young journalist, sportscaster, sports writer in the biggest market in the country? Well, you know, I grew up. Uh, you know, I grew up in Philly. My mother was a New Yorker. File. We used to come up here a lot. We had family up here. Uh, I've always loved everything that you know New York stood for. I mean, I love Philly, but uh, you know, New York was always. You know, been the creme de la creme, and you know, all my broadcast heroes work. You know, came out of here or passed through here at some point, and um, you know, to get the work at the New York Daily News, I got hired by Dick Young, legendary columnist. Um, you know, I did. I, I had. I had. Let's see. I knew my aunt. She worked here in, in Manhattan. I had a couple of college buddies that lived in New York City, but I, you know, again, a hey kid, you're covering college beat. Go get them. And 
that was it and didn't know anybody and had to learn on the fly and I've had a lot of processes like that over the years where you know you got to walk into a room and introduce yourself to everybody and get to know everybody real quick and uh that that was uh, that was an interesting situation I got to cover uh, I did a lot what did I do I did a lot of Columbia football cuz that was something hey, that you know I could fill fill space on a Saturday for a Sunday paper did a lot of their home games and I think one year they actually were halfway decent and then uh I don't remember what else I did. I did a lot of Division Three uh, coverage, did a lot of notes columns, uh, and then did college hoops, too. And then a little bit. And then I got involved with college baseball, too. Got to cover St. John's. And they went to the College World Series a couple of times, and I've become close friends with those, uh, a lot of those guys. As a matter of fact, there are annual reunions in a couple of weeks, and they've invited me to come over and hang out with them. Um, but it, it it was a great experience. I mean, you had to you took your lumps. I mean, I've had copy. Uh, this is not going to work. You need to rewrite this, and, and sometimes not said quite that pleasantly. And uh, and you know the other the other ingredient and whole thing. I think I was pretty sure I was the first uh, African American sports writer at the Daily News, as I was at uh, the Enquirer and pretty much everywhere I've been. So you know that was that was uh, an interesting situation. Uh, and I, I, I cut the benefit of not. I mean, I was working with a lot of, at that time, mid seventies, a lot of uh, grizzled old uh, World War II vets who were coming down a stretch in their careers, and it was uh, a newsroom looked like just it looked like a movie set. I mean, it's so much cleaner and neater and everything now, but back in the mid seventies, it was still it, it might as well have been uh, the front page. Um, and I learned a hell of a lot. I tell you, how to just like sports, it taught me so much about how to you get knocked down, pick yourself up, make a mistake, don't make it again, keep pushing forward. And uh, that's that's something I've always lived by, and I continue to continue to you know, work in that lane even right now. One of the things you mentioned that you know I don't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of time on, just because you probably hear it all the time, but being you know, the first African-American sports writer at the Daily News. Right now you're the only lead play-by-play guy on TV for Major League Baseball. Uh, I guess, does that lack of... Why is the lack of diversity still there? I guess, what do you believe the root problem is as far as lack of diversity in the media? Well, what is, there's a, we do two hours on this. I mean, one, <laughs> one thing for sure in my generation, I think I... I it feels like you know, my generation is the last generation of African American sports fans who absolutely love and adore baseball, um, and I think that the last couple of generations, it, it just, in terms of volume, because the, I, I, it tickles me because, like, say last night uh, after watching Penn State and SC, the, the Sugar Bowl comes on and Auburn and and uh, Oklahoma come on, and you figure out of the 44 starters. Perhaps 38 of them were black, and that's almost like that in every every you know power power five conference, power six conference, uh, NFL, and then the NBA of course is uh, 75, 80 percent black. And a couple of years ago, I ran into Dave uh, Winfield coming out of a hotel in Baltimore, and I happened to throw it, and I said, yeah, "Give me you know out of 750 guys, uh, and let's make it 850 counting the DL." How many how many African American guys do we have playing in major leagues? This was a couple of years ago. He said, "Oh, about 43, 45," and that's not percent. That's a number, a raw number. And I think that things I hear 
talking to the Harrison kid with Pittsburgh and a few other guys, uh, it's the cost of, uh, and, and particularly inner city and maybe little underprivileged neighborhoods, that the costs are prohibitive. And unless you can get a situation like Jay Hay got in Pittsburgh when he was growing up, I think he grew up in Cincy, and he basically you know, got recruited to play. I mean, he's not a real big guy, five six, five seven, great athlete. And he, you know, somebody was saw him and liked him and brought him in and developed him in baseball. And here he is in the big leagues and an accomplished player. And there's not a whole bunch of stories like that. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. born into baseball. Uh, the Kyle Lewis kid that we drafted. Uh, last year, number one pick, he basically won the Heisman Trophy of uh, of college baseball. Uh, he comes from a uh, you know, two-parent home. Sadly, as you watch NFL, NBA, and a lot of guys who do make it, they come from one-parent homes, and generally it's the mother. And she's working one or two jobs, and it's not like she can go out and have a catch with a kid. And and in some situations like Chicago now, or you know, in certain places in the hood, you know, you're fearing for your life just walking around the, walking around the hood and with all the shootings and everything. It's not like when I was growing up in Philly and come here to New York and you'd see guys having a catch, playing stickball, playing halfball, playing wiffle ball uh, in the black community. You don't see it the way it used to be. And guys would, you know, heck, when I was growing up, you know, it would be we'd play a game bounce and fly. We'd, you know, if we had two or three guys, you could only pull the ball because you had a, only had a couple of guys on the left side of the infield. We were always playing ball, and not the uh, baseball is not the case. That's not the case in baseball right now, and it's a shame. Um, I know baseball is is making a lot of inroads. They do an unbelievable job in terms of academies down in Latin America and, and all that. But you know, how about more work being done in the U.S.? And I, and I hear good things. I, I know that uh, I think in D.C. they have a really good program, in New Orleans and L.A. But you know that that needs to be trumpeted, you know, uh, far and wide. That you know. African Americans hopefully are, are starting to make a comeback uh, in Major League Baseball, and I'll never forget asking Frank Thomas, you know, hey, big Frank, you played football at Auburn with Bo, you know, you're here in baseball, you chose baseball, tell me why, and he's like, what are you freaking kidding me? He said, come over here in baseball, I got the best union, best bennies, stay healthy, I'm going to make ridiculous money, and possibly go to the Hall of Fame. And of course, he did go to the Hall of Fame. He must have played twenty something years. A fabulous career, and you know, health-wise, if you put him up against a lot of his uh, peer group who played football for four years in college and maybe hadn't extended and get lucky enough to go beyond the NBA, the NFL average career length, uh, he's doing probably a hell of a lot better than a lot of those guys are. So, and and that's sort of a longy answer to to the question, but it, it's something that bothers me. And the other thing too. When I can take my binoculars out, whether it be in Seattle or almost anywhere, and I can count the black folks, the African-American folks, in a ballpark. I mean, I did that once in Seattle, and I went one, two, and as I scanned into the lower right field stands, hey, there's Floyd Little, who was a you know, pro football Hall of Famer at the time, was a car dealer in Seattle. And, you know, four, five, six, you know, that, that's where it's just not that many people. And, and the, the other sad thing is, sadly, I know when I walk into the ballpark at, Two thirty, three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, to clean up the, the the crew that has prepared the ballpark. The people are going to serve the food. That's where you see the majority of black folks, African American folks in in major league ball uh, ballparks. And then you see them afterwards. But you don't see those. You know, and and that's a big number. And, and when you start counting all, you know, all thirty ballparks, that's a heck of a lot of people. But you just don't you just don't see that many. 
uh, and certainly not from what I can remember as a kid growing up in Philly, uh, what I saw back in the day. So there you go. You know, even going beyond African-Americans in sports and in baseball, why do you think that we don't see very many in the media covering yeah, sports yeah. and covering baseball? Yeah, I, yeah there's only – was. Uh, Bill Latson covers in Washington for I think MLB Network and and Tom, uh, forgive me, but I think Tom is no, not not Thomas George, but this guy in uh, Colorado. I mean, I can name it, Lavelle Neal for one of the Minneapolis papers. The reason why, I mean, a lot of it goes back to what I just said about why there aren't that many guys playing. And then the other thing too, with a lot of things in media, it's not like uh, you know the the editors who are you know profoundly. Uh, the big numbers uh, who, are, who are who are Caucasians. It's not like a lot of those guys in their circle have, you know, no black guys or have black friends or have or, or make their way or make access uh, to get to know and get to look for, uh, you know, African Americans, you know, male and female. I can I, I salute John Skipper at ESPN. He's been doing a super job with that. And in terms of diversity, I mean, ESPN, ESPN's diversity is fabulous. And uh, since he's taken over, it's gotten, I mean, it was decent a few years ago, but these last, I'd say, last five to eight years has been unbelievable what he's done. And he's made an effort, and he's gone out and, and, and found people. Well, he's, you know, one in a million. And you got to go out, and I think historically black colleges and universities, you know, do what John did, get your butt over to, there to those places and start. And if they have an English department, a journalism department, a broadcast department, Go, you know, go in there and talk to the, the guys running it, and he'll point you to the kids who are good and who want to, who who have it, who have the it factor and want to get it done and and make a career of it. And I think that would be, and, and not to mention, the, you know, the you know the general college population, but I mean, in terms of making an intense search, going to a historically black college is probably going to do you, you'd be doing yourself a big favor. So, with that in mind. Obviously, it's a big source of frustration that there's not a lot of diversity in play-by-play in the media. But do you consider it a big source of pride that you personally were able to overcome the long odds and make it to the top of the industry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm following the steps of Bill Wilkerson out in St. Louis, uh, the great Bill White, who is a fabulous player and gold glove first baseman and National League president and longtime Yankee announcer. Good man, and he tried to get me hooked up in baseball and play-by-play years ago while he was still the NL president. Um, trying to think of the other guy, and there aren't too many guys that I can cite. I mean, Paul Olden's now the the uh, he took over for Bob Shepard as the voice of Yankee Stadium. But I first met Paul via an interview I did with him in '87 because I saw a story in Sports Illustrated that he that you know, new broadcaster for the Cleveland Indians. And I look at the picture, I said, "Holy mackerel, the black guy! We got to get him on the air." And, when I was at WNBC Radio. That's where we first met. Had him on the air there, and then since then, I mean, I somewhere I have a list here. I keep a list um, of who guys are and where they are. And there's, I think, counting. Uh, let's see, Mike Claiborne who does pre and post for Cardinal Radio Network, and the Darren Jackson, a lot of guys, ex-players who do color. Uh, you know, Robert Ford's the only full-time uh, radio play-by-play guy. He's African American. He's a New York guy out of Syracuse. At New York City guy and went to Syracuse, and we're it. We're you know, as Mike Claiborne tells me all the time, he says, "Hey man, we're <laughs> we're all the Lone Ranger in our particular markets." 
Uh, hopefully it's getting better. I've heard from a few kids lately. There's a kid out in Southern California who reached out and he came in and shouted me. Uh, one day we were, in so- we were playing the Angels and I just heard from another kid in Virginia. And I hear from a lot of kids, but you know, the, the only two guys I can think of were black are these two kids I was just thinking of. So it's, I'm, you know, it's it, it's it's frustrating for me. But uh, you know, and then I hear from other guys, you know, some writers or who have made the transition from uh, you know, writing into broadcasting that you know they they salute me for what I've done, and you know that. I know. I remember when I first met Gus Johnson. He said you were the only black guy that was uh, broadcasting, you know, football and, or hoops or whatever. And I used to tape all your stuff and analyze everything that you did. And, and uh, who else? Greg Gumble has done some baseball, and you know, he's done a lot of basketball and football, obviously. But their numbers are not what uh, I would like them to be. You know, one of the things that I personally didn't know about these for a while because I am a Midwestern white dude from South Dakota and I had a friend who was a news writer and she was Asian American and she would get all of these interviews that you go I'm going to do this but it's probably just an EEO interview where a lot of companies will give an interview to a woman or a minority in this case it was both and they didn't maybe without really having the the um, plan to actually hire anybody. They just need to kind of say that they are chasing diversity in their hiring process. Do you think that the EEO interviews help or hurt uh, diversity in media? Well, it's everybody trying to start a lot of uh, places version of the Rooney rule um, that they have in the NFL that you got to interview a black candidate for a head coaching job. Um, yeah, I tell you what, the interviewing process uh it it is helpful i will say that and it it's helpful for both sides not only for the interviewee but for the interviewer and again a lot, uh, i mean this is necessarily a blanket statement but uh that's a lot of these people uh who who are in charge you know uh, they may have uh, i'm just i'm a generalized but you could probably find a lot of people that fit this so they have maybe one or two black friends and one and maybe three or four black acquaintances in, in the business tops and and one or two black friends outside the business. So, you know, in terms of exposure to black folks, I mean, it it you know that's a big part of the issue. And you know, if if and, and so much of this business is who you know, so much of it. I mean, it's incredible. And you got to get. You know, I tell young kids all the time. I mean, get your name and face out there as much as possible. Uh, you know, to your regional sports, you know, producers and executive producers, local producers, and all that kind of stuff. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be in the pool, and and you go from there. But yeah, it's helpful for both sides. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that's enough serious stuff. Let's talk about more fun stuff. Um, you, one of your jobs that you were at was you were doing sports talk for WFAN in the early to mid '90s, kind of when the the genre was being invented, so there wasn't necessarily a roadmap of what to do and how to do it. Just tell us some fun stories from your time at WFAN. Well, I even go, I predate that, because from 86 to 88, I was at WNBC. Uh, Imus was on in the morning, I was on at night, and I had Miss Howard Stern by about, I missed him by about six months. He left in August of 85, 
And at the time, there was only one really big sports talk show in New York, and it was Art, Art Russ Jr. at WABC. And, you know, he was the king for the longest time, and then NBC decided to get into business, go to war with him. And they used, uh, they brought in uh, uh, Jack Spector, who was a noted late 50s, early 60s DJ at WINS before it went all news. And it was the darndest format you ever heard in your life, you know. Uh, hey, coming up next, we're going to talk about the Mets. They had a tough loss yesterday. But first, let's hear Billy Joel, and we'll be back with more right after this. So it's like, really? And that blew up. It didn't work. And I made some phone calls, made some applications. One thing led to another, and I wound up getting a job. Uh, and Mike Breen was a producer. Domskin, uh, oh, what's his name? Dominic Spengali uh, was the, uh, or Trinelli. Trinelli was the uh, producer. I joined in with them, and, and we did a heck of a job for two years. We were battling Art Rust, and then WHN, WNEW put up some some. Some uh, some talk shows, and then FAN came on board July of '87. Uh, NBC crumbles. Uh, NBC gets out of the radio business '88, and then September '89, I was I went over to FAN. I was in the morning again. This time I followed him. Uh, I was paired with Ed Coleman, and we had a, we had a great time. Uh, you know, the, the biggest thing. <laughs> I learned a lot of times when we'd come on the air, if it was my turn of my day to open a show, make sure your mic was plugged in because Imus always wanted to be a prankster. When he would leave, he would unplug the mic. I remember that and listening to their show. They used, and then one of their guys, Larry Kenny, one of the great voiceover guys of all time, he I was, he dubbed our show Coleman and the Soul Man, Ed Coleman, you know, white Irish guy from Boston, and Dave Sims, a black guy from Philly. Uh, the Coleman and the Soul Man. I never really took to that, but it, the the name did sort of stick, uh, even to this day. People, hey, Coleman and the Soul Man. Funny stories. Yeah, we could be here forever. But yeah, we had a lot of laughs. So just leave it at that. We had a lot of laughs. We played, uh, got to meet a lot of the people. We got out and met the people. We did softball games. We did charity basketball games. Uh, yeah, we we. I think. Uh, let's see. We were. 10 to 1, 10 to 2, Bill Mazur did an hour at Mickey Mouse Restaurant. They used to fill in for him when he couldn't make it or whatever. And then Mike and a Mad Dog were in the afternoon. And I thought we we did a, a pretty broad range in terms of covering. We like to take care of the colleges as well as, you know, the pros and everything. Um, you know, we'd have our pro football players on. We'd have announcers and writers from around the country. But we also had local coaches and then, you know, it became sort of a recruiting vehicle to this day. If you ask John Calipari, one of his favorite shows to call in when he was on the road recruiting, he was at UMass long before he got to to Kentucky. He would call in periodically. Hey, you guys, what's going on? Just we just start talking. Uh, I remember Paul Pasqualoni, who was a Syracuse football coach. He used to just call in. Hey, we got Paul from Syracuse on, and I'd hear his voice. Oh, Paul Lee, what's up? Uh, we'd have that kind of stuff. Um, Oh God, we had so many. There were so many uh, different people because we would do, you know, open phones a lot during the show. So you get to know a lot of people as we did at WNBC. So, what were some uh, more Don Imus pranks? Oh, he. <laughs> at one time, uh, Eddie and I were up at uh, Yankee Stadium. We're in River Avenue, right out, uh, right beyond the right field fence at Old Yankee Stadium. Under the L, it was opening day. Good Lord, this got to be like ninety one, ninety two. 
and Michael Kay, who's the voice of the Yankees, and at that time I think it was a beat writer. And uh, we're you know we were set up on a platform outside uh, Yankee Stadium, and I'm thrown to a break, and all of a sudden a pigeon bombarded me, hit me right on my right hand, and I was like, oh, right is in the middle. I was asking Kay an interview, I asking him a question during the interview, and I mistook that reaction and made it sound like I got hit on the head, not on the hand. And that little, and they they played a little vignette. They 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 were the masters of production. That sucker must have lasted two years. Unbelievable. <laughs> it, it was. He was. He he's a piece of work. Um, you know, he's he's famous and he's infamous. So, and and we got him involved in a charity thing and tomorrow's children's fun and help uh, really get that whole thing going. So, we had, we had we had a lot of good times there, but. Uh, you know, in terms of Imus, I, I I don't have a have a bunch of stories. I mean, the, the guy was you know he could be, he could turn on you, he'd turn on you like a hurricane. He could be the most gracious guy in the world, funny as all hell, and then you know, but you know he's quirky. All in all, I liked him. You know, he's he's had his ups and downs. He's still at it. He's got to be like seventy seven, seventy eight, still on ABC or WABC radio. So that's where that is. So. Getting into your play-by-play career, you know, you've been with the Temple Owls. You've been with Westwood One doing Sunday night football and the being the lead broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. What was your first break getting into play-by-play with at the Division One or above level? Well, the Temple the Temple gig got everything started, and you know, I, I know the name I'm going to drop on you right now is certainly infamous to say the least, but. When we were at FAN, Cosby Show was in its heyday, and my, I had a, one of my brothers-in-law worked on the show. He came up. He says, "Hey, uh, Bill's executive assistant really likes you. You ought to come down and meet him sometime." So I went down and met this guy and said, hey, "If you ever need anything, you want to meet Bill, just let me know. I'll set it up." So he did, and brought my young, my oldest son in there. We met him, and Bill was great, and we had a lot in common, both from Philly, etc. Anything I can do? I says, hey, you know, is, is I heard Temple's football job is opening up, the radio job. All right. He said, okay, that's good to know. And then that was on like a Thursday or Friday. It was Monday or Tuesday the following week. I get a call. Oh, Dave, uh, Dave Sims. Yeah, this is Dr. Peter LaCourse, Temple University. Welcome to the Temple Owls family. Mr. Cosby speaks very highly of you. We look forward to having you as our play-by-play guy. And that's what started it. And night that would have been 1990 was the first season. I did that first season with the Owls, and they had they had a really good year. They went seven and four, and then two disastrous years. But the great thing, as I mentioned earlier, great thing about this business and any business in America is who you know. And you know that was certainly an example. And then once you get out there, and if you do a good job, and you got some good tape, you get it out there and see what happens. So my agent at the time took my first couple of probably maybe mid-season, late-season games after I got a really good rhythm going. And uh sent it up to ESPN in February of 90. I started working at ESPN, doing college hoops on TV. That was a thrill that was certainly different from doing doing things on radio where you know you have to be hyper-descriptive. And, and, and prior to that, I, I can even think back to NBC. Marty, I mentioned Marty Glickman. He was the announcer coach for MSG. I was at MSG because we were simulcasting our WNBC show. And he was also the announcer coach at NBC, so I got to work with him a lot, doing some games, did some tryout games at Cleveland and and uh, Milwaukee. And I 
wound up doing the Olympics and for NBC in 88, and I was going to be doing football in 89, and Mike Weissman got fired. The executive producer got fired in March of 88. But anyway, that was that's how I got on camera there. And then, you know, again, the Temple thing led to uh, ESPN, and, you know, ESPN college hoops led to, college, led to Major League Baseball in 93, 94. And then, uh, and then from there, what did I do? I did, uh, I got a job at uh, CBS flag station here, uh, WCBS. Um, oh heck, when was that? That would have been, yeah, that was that would have been '95. So, I mean, I've done a lot of things. I, you know, I did I, I did some weekend anchoring, some main anchoring, going back to 19. 19- 84-5, I produced and did some sub-anchoring at the uh, KYW in Philly, the NBC, then, then an NBC affiliate. And then the play-by-play came about. And I got, again, you're meeting people all along the line, and I met some guys at Westwood One through Eddie, Eddie Coleman, as a matter of fact, because he had done some work with them. And uh, I said, I'd love to do football. And one time I get a call, I think the first game NFL game I ever did was with uh, Jack Ham, who I subsequently did a lot of games with. It was I think it was Thanksgiving Sunday '94, San Diego at Kansas City. Joe Montana in Kansas City, great game. Went down to the end. Man, Montana gets the ball at his 30, and they drive down, and they the time ran out. But uh, to call a Joe Montana game, I think that was last. I'm pretty sure that was his last year. That's when I said, geez, at some point if I can get hooked up with these guys, I would, I will. And and uh, four years later. I started filling in for the great Harry Callis because Harry Harry uh, couldn't do September games. The Phillies wouldn't let him do September games, so that would give me three, four weeks weekends to do some games, and I did that for like three, four years. And then they hired me full time. Did Sunday afternoons, and then did uh, Sunday nights for six, seven years, and then did a couple of years in the afternoon, and then they, uh, I got cut loose a couple of years ago. So that's that story. And I did college football. I did a college hoops, so I did the NCAA tournament for 18 years for him as well. What do you like doing better, right, TV go. or radio? Uh, what do I like best? I, I, I give you my, my answer, and, and, and I live by it. It's like asking which one of my two boys do I love more. They're both great. They're both different. They're both challenging. They're both fun. Uh, you got to use all, you got to use a heck of a lot more of your senses, obviously, on radio, TV. It's just a caption service. And then radio, as Mr. Scully says, you got to paint a picture, you got to, you know, do a portrait. And you know, and Marty Glickman always said, you know, sight, sound, smells. What do you feel? What do you see? And and as the name of your podcast, you know, what's the score? Tell me the score for crying out loud. And uh, it's I, I enjoy it. And the last, I think these last two years, have done about forty games on radio, and they're probably doing it again this year uh, with the Mariners. So. It's a uh, it's a hey it's a great way to make a living as I tell everybody I'm living the dream man just living the dream. As an East Coast guy, we've been talking about a lot of stops on the way up on your career in New York in Philadelphia. How did you end up on the West Coast with the Seattle Mariners? Well, my aforementioned brother-in-law who worked on the Cosby Show when he was at Syracuse, the buddy of his, and they used to do a radio show, and I remember. This would have been when I was at WNBC, and I remember doing liners for them. And this guy went on to get a couple of really good gigs, one with the Mariners, then he went to the Boston Celtics, and they came back to the Mariners. And during that time, I think 94, 95, no, 93, 94, 
I did some games in Seattle, and then again in like oh four oh five I did some games in Seattle, and I said, hey, if anything ever happens, you know, or if an opening ever happens here, let me know. I'd love to come out here. I like Seattle because I, I know it from my NBA days. It was always a fun stop and great city, and my wife was familiar with it. She uh, she had applied. She wound up going to Duke for post uh, postgrad, but I think uh, her second choice was University of Washington. So anyway, I think 06, October, right around Halloween, my brother-in-law calls, hey, calls me and says, hey, there's an opening in Seattle. I was like, yeah, okay. I said, what happened? He said, Ron Fairley's leaving. I said, he does color. I do play-by-play. He says, hey, all I know is that my man told, told me to give you a call. So a couple, three days later, I get a call from the guy in Seattle. He said, hey, knucklehead, what are you doing? I get your name and my name on the line here. You want this job or not? Give me a tape. I said, you'll have a tape tomorrow. And I was one of probably a hundred some tapes, and uh, one thing led to another, and I got the job. Started in in '07 with the Mariners. The how was the lifestyle change going from one coast to another? Uh, slower pace out there. Um, um, you know, New York is you know, you're always in the left lane, and you know, I'm going 100 miles an hour. Um, a slower pace, a little bit more caffeinated and well-read and really uh, in terms of an outdoors, uh, outdoorsy city in terms of especially during the spring and summer, more so during the summer. Um, um, I think I think a lot of people in Seattle would cop to this, a lot more passive aggressiveness in, in Seattle than you have in New York. New York is just straight up. And... Uh, in New York, you know, sports is a and then the I ninety five quarter from Washington to Boston. I mean, sports is just a consuming, inflamed way of uh, part inflamed part of your life. I mean, if you're a sports fan, you're just into it and you're into all of them. Um, you know, baseball, comparatively speaking, is a Johnny come lately, nineteen seventy seven to Seattle and a few years earlier with. Uh, uh, let's see, the pilots were there for that one year, then they booked and left for Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, the Mar- uh, not the Mariners, the Seahawks are fairly new as compared to any all East Coast uh, uh, franchises. I think the fervor, well, certainly the Seahawks these last few years, they have been in the two Super Bowls. They, it, it's always been a good football town, and it's, it's over the top now. And the drought that we've been gone through, and we've had a, we've had a couple we've had some home stands this past year and two years ago when we missed uh, we took it down to the last day where you can really see the fervor for baseball and and if we you know if we could ever get any kind of consistency like they had back from like '95 to maybe no not even that I'd say '96 to about '02 when they were leading at attendance on close to four million people trying to get back to that. Summertime, you can't beat it. The you know days, particularly at the peak of summer, it doesn't really get dark there until about 9:55. I'll never forget the first time. It sort of hit me. I guess that first year. And, you know, welcome back, everybody. Top of the seventh inning, and I'm looking at my watch, and I look up at the sky, and it's still bright. It's 9:50, 9:55. I couldn't believe it. Uh, uh, the weather's just superb. Uh, you don't get the Big humidity days out there, like you get here in on the East Coast. Uh, there, you know, when they complain about super hot, I'm going, "This is perfect." What are you talking about? It's 85, maybe 90 degrees when it gets real hot, but generally it's going to stay 75 to 85, and it's just gorgeous. So, um, 
those those are some of the differences. Uh, politically, uh, you know, I would say, oh, it's staunchly liberal. I would say, in, certainly in Seattle, I don't know if you can say that for the entire state, but certainly in Seattle, that's the case. And uh, it's also a city. I think it's the 13th largest market, and it has per capita easily the smallest percentage of African Americans uh, of any big city in the country. So. There's your Seattle profile. Good town, really good town, and, and everybody I talk to that, you know, all the guys that come to town says, hey, particularly I think of uh, Mike Kruko and Dwayne Kuyper. They're always saying, we need to get you guys in our division, or you need to come in our division because coming here once every three years is not cutting it, or every six years. I actually made a trip to Seattle. I, I grew up a Seattle Mariners fan, and they've. Uh obviously been on some hard times recently, and I really enjoyed my trip there. We did actually get to go to a game at Safeco. But I want to get into covering a team like Seattle that hasn't made the playoffs, I think, since 2001. You probably know Mm -hmm. that better than I have. But you're also known for being a very, very high-energy broadcaster. How Mm -hmm. do you keep the energy high when the product maybe is not particularly good? Hey, I used to keep high energy when I was doing four and a half hours of radio on WNBC radio when in the nights when we didn't have basketball or hockey on from 7.30 to midnight. So if I can do it from that, I can do it at a baseball game where you got a live crowd. If your team's not going well, the other there's a, there's always good stories on the other side. There's also the big picture of baseball to talk about. And if something, something big happens with your ball club, you know, get excited about it. It's, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy what I do. I think one, one of my broadcast heroes growing up in Philly was Bill Campbell, who was uh, who Harry Callis replaced, and Harry caught a lot of hell that first year. I think it was 1970. But Bill, Bill was a Philly area guy, and during the course of his career, he did the Phillies, he did the Sixers, he did the Eagles, and I still remember him doing the Eagles in the '60 championship game. And he was always a high energy guy, and. When when I would I was growing up, friends and I we would be you know, playing stickball and doing play by play, and you know, one guy would try to be Byron Sam, I would be Bill Campbell, and I pretty much carried that that uh, that energy with me all the way through uh, my broadcast career, and you know, and I, I, I you know my days as a newspaper reporter where you have to be the aim is to be as highly objective as possible. Well, uh, I, I sort of take a, a couple of paragraphs out of. Uh, out of the Hawk Harrelson, uh, Phil Rizzuto school. I mean, I, when my guys do well, I'm, I'm pretty jacked about it. I'm also pretty excited about anything that, you know, you're going to see some spectacular things that happen in baseball. And, you know, uh, if, if I played a little bit of baseball, played as a good uh, high school player and played in college, and, and uh, so I have an idea, I have a, probably a better idea than other guys who maybe have, who are broadcasting who didn't, who weren't, you know, full-time jocks. I get a, a tremendous appreciation for how tough that game is, and uh, the highs and lows of it. And uh, I, I like to celebrate that. You know, who is Mike Trout makes a, a ridiculous catch? I'm going to go nuts. Uh, and uh, Lord knows he does every hit. <laughs> going to become pretty good pals, and it's uh, at, at the, the pretty regular occurrence. Uh, Big Poppy hits one 20 miles up in a triangle at, at Fenway. I'm going to get excited about it, but. Uh, and I've learned over the years to temper it because it's interesting. You know, I was at ESPN. You know, before I got the, you know, had my own team. You're playing everything down the middle, so you get excited for everything. And it took me. You know, people would give me uh, give me grief on social media. I'd get real excited about somebody hitting a home run against the Mariners. And but I, I've certainly I've balanced it out pretty well in the last few years. 
that's an interesting point to bring up as you talked about uh, people on social media maybe being critical. When I was doing a little bit of research on you, there's a Facebook group out there called M's Fans Against Dave Sims. That's pretty wild, isn't it? <laughs> how do you deal with people like that who don't know what they're talking about? They don't know how hard your job is. Yeah, I, I, you know, they know nothing, so what can I tell you? And uh, all I know is that they would, they would give a body part to trade with me in terms of uh, you know, having a career I've had and the job I've gotten right now. So uh, it used to really bother me. I remember my first couple of years, I remember my oldest son, he said, Dad, you're getting uh, a couple of uh, blocks. He said, you're getting crushed. And then I would, and I guess when Facebook and Twitter started really taking off and I would see other guys getting killed, I said, well, okay, I'm getting the same treatment a lot of guys are getting. I mean, Joe Buck gets killed all the time. I, all the time. I think he's terrific. You know, I've seen people take shots at Vin Scully, and I said, if, if people are taking shots at Vin Scully, hey, <laughs> I'm in good company. With baseball having kind of an influx of Latin American players, um, Asian players, people who don't necessarily speak English, when you're down trying to prep for a game, talking to people at the batting cage, does language barrier ever become an issue for you? Not really, because uh, like Day Ho Lee, who we had this past year, I mean, uh, he was Korean, and he had a, an interpreter with him all the time. So if I needed something from him, I could go get it. And he started picking up English as we went along. So that wasn't a problem. Um, and, and again, most of the guys, most of the Latin players, uh, they come over with a better working knowledge of English than I have of Spanish, I'll tell you that. And you're able to communicate with them. And, and you know, there have been other there have been cases if I need something, I need to, and the kid can't express himself or something. I go to Cruz or I go to Cano and say, uh, hey, i got to ask this guy a couple of questions. Help me out here. And they say, yeah, no problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's how I deal with it. It's uh, And then the Japanese, and the same with Nori Aoki. We had Nori Aoki last year. He didn't speak English, but uh, I, <laughs> I remember late in the year, I, and, and I'm always aware that I'm a big rock and roll guy. And Nori comes up to the plate, and all of a sudden I'm hearing Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good, and I'm thinking, what in the hell? What is that? Nori Aoki and Chuck Berry and Johnny B. Good? So I even said on the air, I said, i got to get to the bottom of this. So I didn't, I don't know if it was, I guess it was the next day when I came in, and I went over to Nori's interpreter, and I said, i got a question that's sort of not related to baseball, but his walk-up song is Johnny B. Good. So the interpreter uh, you know, took my question. You know, why you use Johnny B. Good? He says, "Yeah, I heard some guys, some of the clubhouse guys, playing it one day in the back, and I liked it. And I just, I don't know anything about Chuck Berry, but I liked it. And I said, uh, let me have that as my walk-up song. And low ball two to Nori. <laughs> you know, that's a, I worked it in that way. It was, uh, it, it was, it was fun. But it, you, they make it easy for you to communicate with the guys. Who are really some good. other people who have had surprising walk-up music? What do you call it? Dustin Ackley was with us, and he played something from. Oh, he played a Creedence Clearwater. Oh, he played "Fortunate Son" by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Remember it well, obviously, because it was seventy or, and or seventy-one, and it was during uh, the Vietnam had was about peaking or had uh, come down. And it was starting to taper off a little bit, and it's one of the great war pro- protest songs ever, and. And it's a great song, and the music's good. And I'm thinking, what in the hell does Mac actually have to do with Fortunate Sunday? You know that's a pro- war protest song. 
Same thing. Went up to him, and you know, the next day, I guess after I realized, it, I said, "Dude, what is up with that?" Oh, I just like it. I said, "All right, that's good enough." That's <laughs> um, other stuff. There, um, like, if you were you playing, know, it, what would it, your walk-up music be? Well, I tell you what, probably it would have to be something Motown, and 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 based on what I've done in my career, I'd have to go with Junior Walker and the All Stars and Roadrunner. Good choice. Thank um, you. It's a, that's a great song. If you can't tell you what, if that doesn't get your blood going, something's wrong. You're not here, pal. <laughs> so one of the things we talked about in our emails leading up to this podcast, uh, we talked. You listened to the Ken Korak interview that I had. Oh, did yeah, you did a great night. job, and Kenny's one of the best, man. Good and dude, really good guy. Give us a Ken Korak story. Um, I just remember. First time around, and, you know, we played the ace 19 times, plus we see him probably one, two, probably once at our place, once at their place, maybe three times, four times in spring training. I just remember he was very, he was extraordinarily kind. Hey, man, I've, I've heard you work over the years. and Welcome aboard. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, what, a, what a great opportunity for you to be here in the bigs. And, and he plays golf, and I play golf. So we, we share golf stories and tips and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's the, you know, in terms of stories, you know, I, I ask him about, I ask him a lot about Bill King. Cause I remember when I was covering the Knicks and the Nets, I'd see Bill King. I never had a real chance to meet him. And boy, I got, I got Kenny going one time and, and this was before he wrote the book. It got about a year or two before he wrote it. And I guess he was in the process of, and just sitting back and listening and, and sharing, uh, stories about Bill King, who, along with Scully or his broadcast heroes, heroes, and certainly Scully's one of mine, and I was fortunate enough to get hooked up. I got Mr. Scully's number, and I call him periodically. I remember I called him a couple of years ago. Uh, I hadn't seen him because we, you know, we don't play the Dodgers but so often, and he, doesn't, he hadn't been coming to spring training, and I mentioned it to a John Lowe, who's a great baseball writer in Detroit, has since retired to the University of Texas. And he says, well, Vinny and I are good friends. Give me your number, and I'll have him call you. And one day I was getting ready to do it. I hit an MLB network on MLB network. Uh, I was at Safeco Field, and my phone rings. And, hello, uh, hello, I'm looking for Dave Sims. I said, you got him. Who's this? He says, Vin Scully. And I was like, hey, Vin, how are you? And we chatted for a while, and I said, i just tell you what. He said, I heard John, John Lowe said you wanted to talk to me. I said, I know you're, you know, you come down the last couple three years in your, in your, uh, you know, in your tenure here, and I just want to thank you for being you, for being an inspiration. To all of us, you know, we salute you. You know, anybody who's, you know, can rub two nickels together, you know, particularly in the baseball side of things, you know, you're the guy on Mount Olympus, and you're the guy we look up to and, and appreciate. And I just wanted to tell you that because certainly that is not the American way for people to go out of their way and call or write somebody to tell them, hey, nice job, great job, we appreciate you. So, you know, as I get older and, and you know, in my life, I, I've made it a point to try to do that. When I see, so that's when I saw your, I happened to stumble upon your your uh, podcast with Kenny, and I, I reached out to Kenny on, on uh, I had a cell phone number, and I texted him, and, hey, man, nice job, and I sent you a note, and uh, you did a good job. And, you know, that's something that in this country, and, and especially in this business, we do not do enough of. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to talk about the negative stuff and get hung up on that. And oh, it seems to happen a lot more. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I, I am guilty of that, too, but I am trying to correct that. So, one of the other things we kind of chatted about is that there 
there's a lot of egos in the sports casting business, and that's true. But I think there's a certain respect in the business about how difficult it is and how hard it is to work their way up. And there's a lot of really nice people at the same time in the business. Oh, no question. Um, um, you know, like I said, about Kenny, he, he agreed at me like uh, he'd known me forever. Mike Kruko did the same. I mean, Vince, Contro- Vince Contronio, Vinny's partner, I mean, Kenny's partner in Oakland. I mean, Ray Fossey. I can go down a whole list of guys. I mean, Tom Grieve, uh, Joe Castiglione, Dave O'Brien, John Sterling. I know John Sterling. He's won for years. I know them. So that that's almost like family there. And uh, I mean, you know, the guys in the American League, you know, Tom Hamilton's great, um, really good guy. Uh, Don Orsillo, I was glad he got... Yeah, you know, he got robbed in in Boston. I'm glad he was able to land on his feet in San Diego. Dick Enberg, another one of my broadcast heroes, just retired. I mean, it's a pleasure to meet these guys, and and then now having been around them, I'm in my 11th year, and uh, you know, I'm I'm in double you know, I'm in double figures, and uh, there, I was I was compiling a list. There's a bunch of us in our in our in my age group right now. We were probably the biggest number of guys in our 60s now, and um, it's just it's just a, pl- a pleasure to be around these guys. And I remember when I met Euchre uh, over at uh, was it Maryville where they train. We were over there. And my the spot this got to be about six years ago. And I introduced myself to him and hey Euchre, I said Dave Simpson, America. I know who the f you are. Come on, how are you? How you doing, kid? Sit down. What's going on? That was great. Uh, I mean, <laughs> he is a pisser. And that was fun. And then we did a game. Uh, we did the game on radio. We we're doing radio. We're not doing TV. TV, and we had Uke sit in, and he was telling stories about his acting days, Mr. Belvedere. Great stories about uh, being on on a Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He told a ton of stories before we went on the air, and, and I, that, they let it all hang out. He cleaned them up a lot uh, on air. But that was that was a pleasure meeting him and. It's it's there's there's a lot of good guys. Yeah, there's egos, and it takes a big ego to do what we do and want to do what we want to do. And it's uh, I mean, and even the, we've made it here, and, and we're blessed. And, and Lord knows, there's you know, hopefully uh, you know the next generation will have as much fun as we do. You know, one of the things that I talk about on every single one of these podcasts is. What broadcast horror stories have you gone through in your oh, career? Oh God! Where yeah, 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 yeah. I did one since he was in town. Oh, I think was Junior was probably with him, so that must have been probably he came to us in nine, so it was probably oh eight. No, it's probably oh seven. My first year, and uh, oh man, uh, Dusty Becker's third base coach, Billy uh, Billy Hatcher. I think it was Billy Hatcher. I think was he still playing? Whoever it was, the right-hand hitter for the Reds, and I want to. And at that time, Dave Niehaus was still alive, and I, I would do color with Rick Riz on radio for the first three innings, and then move over to TV with Mike Blowers in the fourth inning, and take it to the house from there. And I did something. I to this day I don't know how the heck it happened. I. Batter, here's the pitch. Batter swung, lined it down the left field line. I took my eye off it. That's a foul ball. And I looked down. I was looking for a number. And next thing I know, Blauer is like tapping me on the on on my shoulder and showing me the you know, doing the home run sign. And I was like, "You have." I'm saying to myself, "You've got to be freaking kidding me!" I just did that. That really happened. Come on. 
was the weirdest thing. And, you know, I, it was a heck of a lesson to learn. And, you know, I had never made a mistake like that before and haven't made one since. But, you know, ball hit down the line. Don't give up on it. And that was, that was, oh, God, it was mortified. I don't know if it, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't remember, but it probably took me five, ten minutes to get over it. Probably was slapping myself, but that was pretty mortifying. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to that maybe aren't particularly well-known at the major league levels? Are there any regional people that you've listened to or some people that have reached out that you've listened to that you think have a lot of talent? Uh, well, boy, with MLB having quick pitch, you hear everybody pretty much, and I have Sirius XM radio, so I can hear everybody. Uh, oh, let me think. Well, let's just say, I who are your Ky- favorite people to listen to in general? Right, Why, well, in general, I love Kruko and Kuiper. Scully goes without saying. Uh, I think uh, Ryan Lefevre's Le- Le- good in KC. Uh, love Ham. I think Tom Hamilton's terrific in Cleveland. I love his. He's up at high energy. We had, we're both in the, from the same pod in that regard. Uh, John Sterling still has unbelievable pipes. Uh, the pitch. <laughs> those are the, those are some of the guys that jump at me. Um, oh, uh, let's see. Charlie Slows is pretty good. I like him down in D.C. Uh, oh, Gary Cohen. Uh, Gary Cohen's terrific. Um, with the Mets, he and he and um, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. I think that is a great trio. I, I think the uh, Crook and Kipe are terrific in San Francisco. John Miller's a lot of fun to listen to. But I mean, all these guys are acknowledged guys. I mean, that you know, these, these are all guys who have either big regional and, and, and around the country people know them. Especially, you know, with the advent of you know. MLB at bat. I mean, you have Major League Baseball at your fingertips, so you can't beat it. Uh, Dick Bremer's really good out in uh, out in Minnesota. Love Burton Plyleven. He's a funny, one of the funniest guys on the planet. Um, so you know, those are the guys that come to mind. In terms of, are you talking about like minor leagues, that kind of stuff? Because I haven't, I don't, I don't get a chance to really hear anybody in the minor leagues. But well, I then we'll just move on from that question. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up, just uh, doing the research on Google, you put Dave Sims in there and you see the pictures up top, pretty much each one of them has a unique hat. You mm-hmm. have a strong headgear game. Where did that come from and how many hats do you have? Uh, boy, I bet of the good fedoras and Panamas and that kind of stuff have easily more than a dozen. And then in terms of caps, Kangol caps and baseball caps, probably two dozen. Uh, and knit caps that I wear, I've worn during football. I mean, I've always been a hat guy, and then and then you know there was a time there where I didn't do it. And then the thing that got me going was interesting. And my father had grown up wearing hats. I grew up watching my father and grandfathers wear hats, and certainly that was, you know, through probably Kennedy's inauguration, maybe into the early '60s, and then sort of fell apart. But I'll never forget. I think it was oh eight. And Mark Grant, who a uh, big right-hander, and he's a uh, Padres TV color announcer. He came into Safeco one day, and he's a big guy. He, he's got a head bigger than mine. And he had on this really neat uh, this fedora. And I said, Mud, I said, you wanted a few white guys that can pull that off. It looks good. He says, thanks, Simsy. He says, listen, this hat. He says, yeah, I'm 
try this hat on. It's a good look for you, man. Try it on. And I tried it on. I said, no, nah, you're right. I said, where'd you get it? I said, uh, there's an there's a Asian couple down in Pasadena, and they got this unbelievable store. You walk in, you're going to want to buy the whole thing. So it just so happened, like a month later, we got a, we played the Dodgers that year. And sure enough, like we're in Pasadena, and I go walk in, I stumble onto the store, and I walk in, and I came out with three hats and started wearing them. And, and uh, I walked into the clubhouse and the coaching staff and played, hey, very cool, man, I like it, very cool. So I started wearing them, and then you know, I'd wear them on the air, and uh, people you know, started reacting to them um, on social media, and it, got, it, got, it was an organic movement that took off. And then September, was it July of 2010, we had a Dave Sims hat night at Safeco Field. And then since then, you know, we've had hat nights and a lot of, and they've they've made these fedoras and and uh, they haven't put my name on it in Safeco, but we have a hat night. We've had a hat night I think every year since, and a lot of other ball clubs. I know Texas, I think the Angels, and a few other clubs. And then I think I saw a Phillies promo for a hat night. So and that's another contribution I've made to baseball. <laughs> um. You know, moving forward from that, you're famous for a couple different catchphrases. Um, Boomstick, baby, and giddy up, your kind of home run calls. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with those? And what are maybe some catchphrases that you've used that you didn't like and you let go? Maybe some failed yeah, catchphrases. Yeah, well, the boomstick comes from uh, long admiration of uh, Slick Leonard, who was a color announcer for the Indianapolis Pacers when I was in uh, when I was covering the NBA. He was a coach, and then after he retired, he, he, was, he went on radio. And I can remember doing this great Nick Pacer Wars. Uh, I'm trying to remember Mark something. Mark uh, Boyle. He used, yeah, Mark Boyle. He used to be at FAN. And Reggie in the corner for three, and you'd hear Slick go, boom, baby. So move forward to Nelson Cruz coming to, to Seattle. And then one day I'm I'm on on Twitter or something. I see his or Instagram, one of or something, and I see his handle was Boomstick, and I went ooh. So I, I asked my kids. I said I'm thinking about using this for a Nelson Cruz home run call. Boomstick, Boomstick, baby. And they were like, ooh, Dad, you got to use it. It's really cool. So what's this? Nelly Nelly joined us in what 14? What's it or 15? And he kills one. In Oakland, I mean, and hardly any of his home runs are cheap. You know, long drive, left field, that ball's gone. Boom, stick, baby, Nelson Cruz with his first home run as a Mariner. Blowers looks at me, goes, "Ooh, I like that," and I've been using it ever since. And then, you know, the giddy up thing. I grew up in the fifties and sixties when the westerns were. That was your basic mode of entertainment at night, for the most part. It seemed like every network had two, three, four westerns on, and. You know, I always telling the horse to giddy up, and you know you hear you hear things, and you just you, you want to make something unique, and you hear you riff off of what other people are doing. And I said, let me try that, and and it, uh, it just it just fits, and I, and I liked it, and I didn't I didn't quiz anybody on that one. I just started doing it, and uh, I like it, and I haven't had any major complaints. <laughs> people seem to like it, so it's uh, part of what I do. Uh, uh, in terms of other stuff that I, I haven't really, I try not to go out of my way to to do too many. It's, it's best organic. If you try to force it, it 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 just it you know sometimes it doesn't work and it just sounds too manufactured. Uh, 
and I, I just didn't, I get a lot of, you know, I get a lot of joy out of it. Matter of fact, I, before, and be, let me go back to the cruise thing. After I, I, my kids, they gave me thumbs up on it. I remember that uh, I went to cruise and I said, uh, I'm thinking about using this when you hit a home run, boomstick baby. And his face lit up. He said, oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Use it. So, but, I don't know, a couple, about a month later, I go in the clubhouse. He says, come here, come here, I want to show you something. And somebody put a mashup of, like, his first ten home runs uh, with the Mariners, and they all had Boomstick Baby on it. And he was, it was, uh, it was so cool. He was, he was so proud. It was, you thought he was, it was Christmas morning, for crying out loud. It was hilarious. But uh, those, those are the two I, I like to ride with. I, 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 <laughs> anything else that I may have done and flushed, they'll stay flushed. <laughs> <laughs> um. Last question, and then you've already given me over an hour, so we'll get you back uh, on your merry way. But you uh, you went through cancer. You had to get treatment. Well, you were able yeah, to, going through cancer in general, obviously never an easy thing. You were able to kick it as far as I'm understanding mm-hmm. anyway. And how has yep. that affected your daily outlook on just kind of life, broadcasting and learning to enjoy the journey more than stressing over the little yeah, things. Yeah, you try I try I try to limit my jerky moments although my wife sometimes made <laughs> dispute that of it. but uh uh yeah, it 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 you know, I I try to I want to still go full speed ahead but also re, you know understanding the fact that you're not immortal. I I caught a hell of a break. I mean, got I found out by basically by accident uh, you know, we were re-upping for some insurance. Took a blood test. About a month later, the, the elevated PS the number the PSA number came back elevated from where it had been about ten eleven months before. I didn't like it. Got on it. Um, got to uh, uh, call my wife's OBGYN because we knew he'd be connected. He was. He said, "I'll have a guy. I'll have you in a guy's office on Friday." He did. Went through a battery test. And, uh, this would have been December of fifteen. You had a biopsy, the seat, you know, the the CAT scans, a whole this, that, and the other with the surgeon, and this guy is great at. Uh, and uh, he said, "Well, yeah, you got it, and your, your number's really bad. And we got to get it out. This isn't going to be a partial. This isn't going to be any mamby pamby. You got to get it all out." And um, and uh, this would have been mid-December. He says, look, you need to heal coming off the biopsy. We'll do it in a month. How's January 15th? I say, can you get me to spring training on time? He says, heck, yeah, done. And everything worked out. As a matter of fact, I did a hoop game about, let's see, the surgery was Jan 15. I did a hoop game on January 6th. And uh, and then I've been real lucky, the rough part, uh, you know, the, the recovery week you know, was nothing I would wish on anybody. But we got through it. My wife is an absolute saint and a trooper, and and was an unbelievable help and companion on that. And uh, you know, I've done my due diligence. You know, I get my PSA checked every three months, and I think after the next time, I want to get it every six months, and then after that, every year. Uh, the numbers have been clean, functions are good, and uh, you know, and I encourage. I, you know, I cut a spot for a Seattle hospital. A PSA that ran in the ballpark, and uh, we did some stuff at the did a walkthrough at the Hutchinson uh, the Hutch Center in in Seattle on a premier uh, K 
cancer facilities in the in the country, and um, did a Jerry Depoto who he had thyroid cancer, so we did a conversation. The two of us, I guess, it was about five minutes that went really well, and so we had that out. And uh, the folks at the one Tacoma Hospital, we're going to do some more work with them coming up this season. And, you know, I stress the guys, it's one in seven American men are going to get it, one in five African-American men are going to get it. And I like to think that, uh, you know, I jumped a hell of a hurdle here and, you know, onto it and up it from, from there. So, you know, it, it only, I'm probably more freaked out about it now looking back than I was then um, going through the whole thing because, all right, what do I have to do? Right, i got to do this. i got an appointment. i got to do this. i got to do, you know, you just do it. And then... You, did, you know, there were a couple of times you wake up in the morning at 4.30 in a cold sweat, like, holy cripes, I have freaking cancer. Are you kidding me? And uh, so that was that was a little daunting on a few a few occasions. But all in all, I, I think uh, I think I've handled it pretty well. And, and I would wish the same for every or anybody who, who might be unfortunate enough to to contract this dreaded disease, and we got to do everything we can to beat the damn thing. Well, again. Thank you for joining us and giving us some time here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. If somebody wanted to reach out to you and ask you another question or ask broadcasting advice, how would they do so? Uh, uh, on Twitter, uh, at the Dave Sims Show, all one word, and Sims with one M. I'm all over social media. You can find me on Instagram at, at TDSS, and I'm on Facebook as well. So easy to reach. Perfect. Well, again, I sure appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Logan, do a good job, man. Thank you very much and enjoyed it. And uh, they continued success. And next time you come to Seattle, give me a holler. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our guest, Dave Sims, the voice of the Seattle Mariners on TV. I also want to thank everybody who has already subscribed to the podcast. It continues to grow, and I certainly appreciate all of you. And again, I want to remind anyone who's not subscribing yet how to do so. You can do so on iTunes, you can do so on Google Play Music, you can do so on Stitcher, or you can just follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash score, or you can sign up for email updates on the website by clicking the top right corner of SayTheDamnScore.com and signing up for email updates. That's going to be it for today. Until next time, say the damn score a little bit more.